0: The American Thoracic Society, we help the world
1: breathe.
2: This is Jacob Yasha Schneider, editor of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, welcoming you to the American Thoracic Society's podcast. I would like to introduce our editorial board member, Dr. Nathan Sim of the section of Pulmonary Critical Care Medicine at the Veterans Affairs Hospital in Washington, D.C. He is an assistant professor of medicine at George Washington University and conducts translational research on biomarkers of inflammation and coagulation in ARDS and sepsis. Welcome, Dr. Sim. Thanks, Yasha.
0: In today's podcast, I will discuss the topic of 24-7 intensivist coverage with Drs. Alan Garland and Jordy Mancebo. Dr. Garland is Associate Professor of Medicine and Community Health Sciences at the University of Manitoba. Dr. Garland and his colleagues conducted a novel 32-week crossover pilot study comparing a standard staffing model to 24-7 intensivist coverage on various stakeholders. This study is entitled 24-Hour Intensivist Presence, a pilot study of effects on ICU patients, families, doctors, and nurses, and is published in the April 1st, 2012 American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Mancibo of Hospital de San Pao, Barcelona, Spain, is co-author of the editorial accompanying this study. We will start the podcast with a question for Dr. Garland. Dr. Garland, can you describe the rationale for your study?
1: Certainly. In recent years, I would say over the past 10 years, there's been quite a lot of movement, certainly in North America and I think around the world, to have intensivists remain in the ICU, remain in the hospital around the clock. The rationale for this makes good sense. However, what there isn't is a lot of good data. There's a small amount of data, and that data is generally of relatively weak study designs. So we wanted to try to improve on that and add to this literature.
0: Dr. Mancibo, uh, Dr. Garland alluded to some of the prior studies. And there have been several other studies of 24-7 intensivist coverage. Can you describe some of the limitations of these prior studies?
2: Some of the previous studies are limited because uh, either are uh, retrospective or have some problems in uh, their design, especially the before and after design uh, studies, which makes uh, the interpretation uh, of that difficult.
0: So then let's get to some of the details of the study. Dr. Garland, can you please describe the two models of ICU staffing compared in your study?
1: So we compared what we call standard with shift work staffing models. In our institutions, the intensivists do a block of time that's a week long. So the standard staffing model is the historical model here in Winnipeg, and that is that a single intensivist in a single ICU is in charge for a week. That means that they come in during the daytime, they make rounds, And they're there during the course of the day, seven days a week. However, in the standard staffing model, the attending physician, the intensivist, would go home at night and take call by phone from home, talking if they're at one of the academic hospitals with house staff, they would interface generally with the house staff by the phone. And if they were at one of our community ICUs where there are no house staff, they would interface by phone with the nurses, the ICU bedside nurses and they would come back in as they thought fit and necessary or not. That's the standard model. The shift work model is a 24-7 intensivist presence model where for the one-week period, there'd be a single daytime intensivist who would come in during the daytimes and do the same things they did in the standard model, but then at 5.30 in the afternoon, a nighttime intensivist would come in and would take over. There'd be uh, sign-out person-to-person usually, And that nighttime person would stay overnight until 8 in the morning when the daytime intensivist would come back. Now, I should say, because I think it's relevant here, because there's many ways to implement 24-7 shift work coverage, is that we had two different nighttime people. One would do four nights, one would do three nights. Instead of having a single nighttime person for the whole week, which is how Ogi Gayach did it at the, the Mayo Clinic.
0: So then I'd follow up, Dr. Garland, because when 24-7 intensivist coverage is discussed, there's a common concern about the need for more staff and then the associated expense required to cover such a model. So in the shift work model, you described there are three people over the course of the week as opposed to the one in the standard staffing. So how did you go about this? Did you have to hire more intensivists to enable 24-7 coverage in the shift work model?
1: Our situation is probably different than in many other centers. Here in Winnipeg, we have a um, system where all of the 11 ICUs and six hospitals in Winnipeg are covered by our group, our group at the University of Manitoba. And we are paid on a weekly stipend, so it's not fee-for-service exactly, nor is it a salaried employee type of model. So what we were able to do is that the province agreed to pay for an extra slot to make this happen. So instead of uh, having, in the two ICUs where we did this, we would have generally two people in the standard model, one at each, two slots, call it that. In the shift work model, we had three slots because while one ICU was doing the standard model, the other one was doing the shift work model. So we pretty much moved that other slot back and forth. So although we didn't have to hire more bodies, it did cost more money. And I agree that this is a very legitimate concern about the cost to society of this kind of intervention and highlights one of the important aspects of why we need to know whether this is beneficial or not and to whom.
0: So, Dr. Garland, could you please explain the design of your study and mention what the primary endpoint evaluated and how it was measured?
1: This was a 32-week study done in two intensive care units. One of them was a teaching medical ICU with house staff and ICU fellows. The other was a community ICU without house staff or fellows. It was a 32-week alternating study design where in four eight-week blocks, we alternated in each ICU on-off, on-off between the standard model and the shift work model. That was the basic design. The important and novel features of this study, I think, are First, that it was a programmed intervention, not a a retrospective observational study of a pre-post change that we just happened to do. Second, the alternating crossover design was important because it obviates the concerns, the very serious concerns, of the previous literature, which were all pre-post studies, which really amounts to historical controls. And third, as I mentioned, we did this not only in an academic ICU, but also in a community ICU. That's important because It may not be one-size-fits-all. The answer may be different in different kinds of units that vary in different ways.
0: So then, Dr. Garland, what were your study findings?
1: The primary endpoint, this study was meant to be a pilot study. The primary endpoint was an intensivist endpoint. It was job burnout. We used the emotional exhaustion subscale of the standard Maslach burnout inventory, assessed by giving questionnaires at the end of each week to the uh, intensivist in each of the two participating ICUs. So the primary finding, given that primary endpoint, was that the intensivists reported significantly less job burnout when they were doing shift work staffing compared to the standard staffing model. Obviously the patients are the key reason that ICUs exist, although this study was not powered or designed to uh, identify cleanly outcomes for patients. But what we found was that shift work intensivist staffing was not, in our study, associated with significant differences in hospital mortality. ICU length of stay, or four measures of resource use. For the families, we did family satisfaction surveys. There was no difference between the two staffing models and family satisfaction using the family satisfaction and ICU 24 validated survey tool. For nurses, we looked at a whole slew of possible outcomes using validated questionnaire tools, and the only one that was different was that there was more what was called role conflict for the nurses under shift work staffing than under standard staffing. For the residents, for the house officers who were rotating on one-month rotations in the tertiary ICU, interestingly enough, when they were rotating during a block where there was a night shift intensivist present with them, they reported more supervision, reduced autonomy, but curiously no difference in learning opportunities. Those were the basic outcomes. Uh, I'll mention one other for the intensivists. In addition to the primary outcome of burnout, we also found that shift work was associated not only with less burnout, but also better home-life balance, less job overload, but more role uncertainty. We also noticed, lastly, that uh, 10 to 15 percent of the intensivists doing the shift work model reported one or more distressing conflicts that they had about patient management with those on the other shift.
0: Thank you for that, Dr. Garland. Dr. Mencibot asked what your thoughts are on the study results.
2: Well, to tell you the truth, when I saw the title of the first version of the manuscript, my impression was that the strategy of uh, shift work staffing would be great for everything, simply because we used to work in such kind of uh, staffing models in Europe. And after reading the study, uh, I was uh, surprised by the fact that data clearly indicated that the shift work staffing model was not more beneficial in terms of patients' outcomes.
0: I'd ask you, Dr. Garland, about the difference in intensivist burnout, which was, as you mentioned, the primary endpoint, though the difference was statistically significant in favor of the shift work model. I guess I'd ask what your thoughts are in terms of its clinical significance.
1: Well, burnout is a construct, a questionnaire construct. It has a certain kind of face validity. It is, as you said, statistically significant. It was relatively small. That's true. The question of how much benefit for any group of workers, such as the physicians, how much benefit you have to show to think that it's significant, I guess that that's a hard question to answer. It was a relatively small numerical difference, I will uh, admit, however. The implication of that, however, is that what we found was that, at least in our study, the shift work model, as Jordy said, was not better for the patients, and it was better for the doctors. That leads to a whole host of interesting questions about what should be the expectations for the criteria that we use to decide how we staff ICUs. Should it all be patient-related? Certainly, ICUs exist to service the medical needs of patients, but they're not the only important stakeholders.
0: I found a lot of these other stakeholder evaluations uh, fascinating, and I'd ask you both. I'd first ask you, Dr. Garland, what are your thoughts on the fact you alluded to earlier that there was more role conflict among ICU nurses with shift work staffing?
1: We've talked about this a lot, and, you know, you can imagine an explanation for almost anything. And so our explanation for that off the top of our heads is that one of the things that I've observed over the 20 years I've been doing this is that nighttime nurses like to be left alone. There's usually a reason that nurses choose to do night shifts. And when there's an attending in-house, my guess is that they're not left alone as much as they want and that that may be. This is just speculative But that may be the origin of some of that effect. That's very interesting. Dr. Manfivo, do you have thoughts about that?
2: Of course, uh, this is uh, one of the explanations, and I don't want to enter to a psychological uh, in-depth analysis uh, about this. But uh, it's conceivable that if not all, uh, a number of them uh, feel uh, more comfortable in the way that Alan just suggested.
0: Dr. Mancibo, I'd ask you if the characteristics of the two study ICUs and hospitals used in the study, do their characteristics affect the generalizability of the results?
2: Well, again, this is one of the main issues. Uh, The ICUs were relatively small and level of uh, equity uh, of the patients uh, were also, say, uh, moderate. How this can be uh, extrapolated to other uh, environments, uh, I simply do not know. But it's true that, again, when we look at all data mainly collected in the ICU in Europe, perhaps, and uh, I'm not saying this as a rule, but perhaps as a trend, that the percentage of patients uh, intubated and mechanically ventilated for longer than 24 hours is uh, is higher in Europe and perhaps the average uh, acuity of the disease is uh, slightly higher in Europe as compared with uh, North America, and again, I do not know if uh, this reflects, for instance, uh, a shortage uh, of beds in Europe as compared with North America, uh, the United States, and uh, and Canada, or may reflect different admission policies.
1: So it is true that the two ICUs, it was only two that we studied, one was a 10-bed academic medical ICU and one was a six-bed community medical surgical ICU. And I completely agree with Jordy that it is very dangerous to assume that what's true in terms of organizational efficacy in one kind of unit or one size of unit would apply to another kind or size of unit. I think that's a very important observation going forward for the design of uh, larger trials. Having said that, I'll also point out that almost all of the research on this and lots of other topics with respect to ICU care, a lot of it has been done in large academic centers. However, it is not true that most ICU care, certainly in North America, and I think this is also true in Europe as well, it is not true that most ICU care occurs in large academic centers. And there's some literature that we quoted in our manuscript that identifies that, in fact, Derek Angus found that the median number of ICU beds in ICUs in the United States was eight. And a study of 16 European countries found that half of ICUs had eight or less beds. So it is true that our two units that we did this, performed this study in, were not large. But by international standards, they weren't small either. They were sort of average size.
2: People uh, used to work in larger in the university hospitals that perhaps have average of uh, 15 beds, etc., etc., they do not realize that the real world is not like this. And as uh, Alan pointed out, uh, when we take a photograph, the real world is that there are half of the ICUs in uh, North America and in Europe with uh, a maximum of eight beds. So, uh, again, this is a reality that we need to, to take into account.
0: So, Dr. Garland, I can only imagine how difficult it is to do this type of research. I'd be interested to hear from you what challenges you face in conducting this study, specifically how much resistance you must have met from your ICU staff in moving from a standard model to a 24-7 coverage schedule.
1: Yes, thank you for that question, and I think it's really important. Let me say as a precursor to answering the question directly, that I was interested and tried to get my colleagues in two previous institutions to do such a study, and it was difficult. One of the standard refrains from intensivists is to recognize, yes, this is important stuff, and yes, it should be done, but it's inconveniencing to do a study like this, and I don't want to be inconvenienced. So it's actually very, very difficult to get buy-in. And here, the way we were able to get buy-in is through our leadership's strong support. So, as in everything, leaders must lead, and our critical care leaders here in Winnipeg, my division chief in critical care, Dr. Roberts, were strongly in favor of doing this and convinced people to participate. Now, of course, we have 11 ICUs, and we only did it in two ICUs. So there was the ability, although this didn't happen very much, there was the ability for people to opt out and work in other ICUs during this 32-week study. As I said, that didn't happen much. But the bottom line is we were able to get it done because our leadership was strongly supportive and convinced people that it was important and that they should participate.
0: Dr. Garland, I'd to ask you about the current state and use of 24-7 intensive staffing in Canada.
1: We are in the process of finishing up a study, a survey, a telephone survey of all adult ICUs in Canada, of which there's about 400 and some. That's not done yet, so I don't know the answer. However, Chris Parshuram, who's in Toronto, did a study that he published in 2006 in Critical Care Medicine where he surveyed 82 adult ICUs and a smaller number of pediatric ICUs. And at that time, so this was probably 2005, 12 of the 82 or 15% of the adult ICUs that he surveyed had 24-7 coverage.
0: So I'll ask Dr. Mancibo, in Europe there are many different national health uh, systems, but since I have you as our European representative in today's podcast, I'll ask you broadly about the European perspective. How is the concept of 24-7 intensive coverage received, and how widespread is the implementation of this coverage across Europe?
2: Here in Europe, there is the common thought that the trained uh, staff specialists uh, have to be present 24 over 7. However, there are a number of issues uh, related with this. First of all is the cost, second is that maximum number of hours that a doctor uh, can work per week is uh, 48, and also uh, recent data showed uh, that the presence of a fully trained intensive care specialist 24 hours uh, over seven was not homogeneous uh, among the different uh, European countries. For instance, in Northern uh, Europe, that presence was about 40 or 50%, and perhaps uh, this is uh, more associated uh, with the previous critical care uh, culture in these countries, I don't know, but it was a clear difference with respect to the southern uh, European countries, uh, in particular uh, France, uh, Italy, and Spain, in which uh, the ICUs were staffed. And 90% of uh, those surveyed were staffed by uh, fully trained specialists 24 over 7. So, uh, again, uh, great uh, heterogeneity across uh, different European countries.
0: So, I think you both described that there's significant support for 24-7 intensive coverage, and yet there are many challenges to its implementation. I also know that you are both on record supporting large studies to evaluate what the best way to staff ICUs is. I'd ask both of you, given your experience, how would you design such studies and what outcomes should be studied? I'll give you the first shot at it, Dr. Carlin.
1: Well, I think based on the things that we've uh, touched on before, there are several issues. First is that it's important that the study design not be simply before versus after. That's historical controls, even if the historical controls were from two months ago. So if there's enough centers, then a cluster randomized trial is possible. Whether there's enough centers or not, one could do a study similar to ours with an alternating crossover design. That might be hard to sell, but uh, nonetheless, it is a more rigorous study design than pre-post. So that's one issue, is the study design. Of course, there has to be a recognition, as we've talked about already, that the answer could very well be different in different kinds of ICUs, in different size ICUs, in ICUs with different kinds of patient mixes, and importantly, in ICUs with different baseline structures and different nighttime coverages at baseline. So one of the interesting observations is that in the uh, study from the Mayo Clinic by Gaiach uh, on this topic, which was a before versus after study, that also, like ours, found that there was no apparent clear-cut benefit for patients, at least with respect to mortality and length of stay in the ICU, that in their ICU, in the one ICU in which they performed that study, they had fellows, ICU fellows, in addition to house staff, staying in the ICU at baseline. So one might interpret that as saying when you add an ICU attending to an ICU fellow at night, it doesn't give you extra benefit. Having said that, in our small study, we also didn't find an extra benefit or a benefit when we added uh, an attending in our community ICU who had no physicians staying at night. So diversity of structures makes it challenging to try to get the right answer. And, again, there might not be a one right answer. So one has to be careful to include in this study, in future studies, probably multiple a sufficient diversity to represent what's really going on out there. So certainly, the majority of ICUs in the world, at least the Western world, are small to moderate size. I wouldn't say small, but moderate size. They're not 20-bed behemoths. But the 20-bed behemoths are important also because many big academic centers take care of awfully sick patients, and the answer might be different to them. So study design's important, study diversity is important. Oh, and the last issue I want to make is that we have to be thoughtful about looking at a range of outcomes for a range of stakeholders that goes beyond just looking at uh, short-term patient outcomes. And Dr. Mancibo, I'd ask for your thoughts.
2: Of course, a very rigorous and a straightforward design mentioned by uh, Alan, uh, and that would be an alternating crossover uh, design. And again, uh, what would be uh, interesting, taking into account many other uh, aspects which uh, I will comment later. Another alternative, uh, perhaps, uh, could be uh, to compare similar centers, not uh, identical because this is impossible, but uh, similar centers in terms of uh, number of beds, in terms of uh, case mix, uh, for instance. Uh, in which uh, the usual care is delivered, knowing one side by uh, standard staffing, for instance, uh, Allen's uh, center and centers uh, that deliver care uh, in that way, and compare this, again, with uh, similar centers with uh, of similar structures, but delivering the shift work uh, and 24 over 7 intensivist presence.
0: Dr. Garland, any final thoughts?
1: Yes, thank you. I also appreciate the opportunity to uh, participate in this podcast, and I think it's raised all of the important issues that need to be addressed here, uh, at least in passing. I would say my most important bottom line here is that we need much more data on this topic, as Geordie's pointed out. But I think it's a fair reading of the small existing data, including our paper, to say that at this point the weight of evidence does not support the belief that 24-7 intensivist coverage improves outcomes for patients. I would say that with a view toward those hospitals, ICUs, and groups who are thinking that this is a necessity, that this should be the standard of care. We need much more data, and maybe in the future we will find, with more and more carefully done data, that it is highly beneficial for patients. But at the moment, I don't believe we know that. Dr. Garland, I think
0: that's a good way to close today's podcast. Thank you both for joining me. You can find the study by Dr. Garland and colleagues, as well as Dr. Mancibo's accompanying editorial in the April 1, 2012 issue of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Further international perspective on the 24-7 intensivist coverage debate can be found in a series of pro-con editorials in the June 1, June 15, and August 1, 2010 Blue Journals. A complete archive of the ATS article discussion podcast can be found at thoracic.org. In addition, you can get a free subscription to ATS Podcasts by searching iTunes for American Thoracic Society article discussions. I'm Nathan Seam
1: for the American Thoracic Society.